นโมทัสสะบาวะโวะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสนะโมทัสสะบาวะโวะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสนะโมทัสสะบาวะโวะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะอภารุธาเดสังอมตัสสะทาวราเยโสรวันธาบมุนจันทุสะทังเ
environment to grow up in. You know, it was my sister and myself, uh, parents who were who who had a lot of respect for each other and had a strong moral sense of moral responsibility and a spiritual uh, aspiration. So then the growing up there were certain things that were uh, you know ways of 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 living that that my parents had not really explored themselves very closely they didn't know they were they weren't of that generation there was a turn of the century type uh, people uh, that never asked deep questions about what they felt or what their purpose in life is they more or less believed very much what they were told and uh, they didn't question things very they didn't doubt about they about god or the or jesus christ or the importance of christianity or the uh the value of it or the or what the priest would say what the bible said so then, in in that kind of uh, social milieu, it uh, certain things were like anger was not allowed to be expressed, and and we were supposed to be very uh, uh, respectful to our parents, and and um, we didn't drink uh, or or didn't drink uh, alcohol. Uh, my father smoked camel cigarettes and had a terrible cough. But he lived to 91 anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and they weren't filtered either in those days. Um, he was a businessman, so he had, he had kind of a, uh, you know, he provided a, a, a fairly comfortable home and, and that for, for us. But then, the the various uh, attitudes and fears of fathers that aren't home very much, uh, who who uh, whose relationship with the children is pretty remote, and uh, then the, the the mother was a devout Christian and she was uh, also had her her limitations in, as a as a personality. So so I found growing up uh, certain things. Had had to be uh, repressed if you were going to fit into this family and be an acceptable member. Then uh, various uh, unpleasant emotions uh, and and feelings and habits were usually you got the messages when you were very young that this was bad, this was wrong, this was would make you unacceptable. So you developed ways of just uh, suppressing it. And then these would come out in various other ways as, as they got older, you know, the, like a repressed anger. It would, I began to observe that, that, that I was very good at this, and then I, but then I'd blow up over some trivial matter, like the last straw that breaks the camel's back, you know. Uh, some, somebody might just, uh, you know, Say something that uh, something trivial at the wrong time. This little uh, and all this repressed <coughs> anger. Suddenly, that's the last straw, and suddenly you kind of explode. And like, and and when I explode, it's rather frightening. Uh, 
uh, I'm a big person, and so <laughs> I've got a loud voice, and I can make a lot of noise and, and look pretty horrible. And so after observing the effect on this, it's rather, you know, you try to, you, you're wondering, you know, this is really, uh, you know, you don't want to do this, but you can only take so much, you know, you get pushed to a point, and then suddenly the last straw, and then you, you blow up and upset everybody. And some people never, up to this day, have never forgiven me. <laughs> not that I've done anything, I didn't, I don't, I'm not violent or, or that, but, or, or, or abusive, but it's just uh, this, uh, this incredible kind of power uh, of anger that, that accumulates and then it reaches a point and it, then it explodes. So I say this is the the dark side, the the fear, the the unresolved negativity, the resentment, uh, sexual uh, desires, and things like that that have been been uh, either repressed or denied, and um, various uh, maybe karmic tendencies that that you uh, that you have certain character tendencies that are unwholesome or or socially unacceptable uh, that that you learn at a very young age to to uh, deny or repress and it's not intentional it becomes habitual the the patterns are just become very uh, you know as these things edge into consciousness you have kind of automatic reactions to stop them to to deny them So that in terms of dark and light, you know, like being good and, and being uh, honest and being truthful and being generous and being moral and being responsible, and uh, although this, was the, the, this is what one was supposed to be. But I noticed as a child uh, some rather frightening experiences where, you know, I was aiming to be a good person, a good boy, I wanted to be honest, I tried to tell the truth, uh, and uh, I tried to not uh, take things that didn't belong to me. I was never a kind of like, I never enjoyed cruelty, like um, being cruel to animals or other people. Uh, I never found that something I inclined to do. So I was basically quite a had, a, had a good character. I. I and I wanted to be good, but then in spite of all this, I remember having some really horrendous thoughts enter my mind. And one, one of the most terrifying ones, well, it must have been about nine or ten years old, was on the public transport in Seattle, and uh, uh, going home, and, and uh, the, this uh, trolley was filled with, trolley car was filled with people, and then I had this most demonic thought enter my mind, a really demonic kind of violent thought and vision entered my mind and and i and it was so horrible that I uh, really was upset because the the logic is that if you're good, you wouldn't have such thoughts. so I began to wonder you know if I was possessed by something really evil. And uh, because my logic then was a good boy would never be
be able to think or have such a terrible thought in his mind. Uh, so this was very worried. I was very worried about this because I thought, what is, you know, there's something, there's something dark and black inside me. And, and just that would create a kind of fear uh, of, of that it might happen again. So then uh, I remember going to, you know, I was in the high church. Uh, we'd have to go to confession once a month. And so uh, we, my mother would take me to the priest and we'd, and I'd, every night I'd sit, before I went to sleep, I'd, I'd have a list of sins. And I'd go through this list, and and if I said a lie, told a lie, then I'd mark that, and all that kind of various sins that you had, and, and uh, so I and I was very diligent at, at listing all these sins, uh, and if I had any doubt about maybe I sin, I would mark it definitely just to be sure that I covered everything, and quite. <laughs> And uh, so trying to and go to confession, get purified by the priest and get absolved, take Holy Communion, do all the right things, be a good boy, obey your mom. Uh, my father, he was always kind of so busy and, and tired that I just avoided him not to disturb and annoy him. Uh, I was a good student in school and tried not to cause any problems. I think that was very uh, probably a little too good. <laughs> it was boring on goody goodness because uh, I really wanted to be good. And then um, this, the, these, and as puberty approached and so forth, then other forces started influencing consciousness. <laughs> 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 <And laughs> what are you going to do with all this? You have no, you don't know what you know. So you're, you're kind of uh, and the. Uh, nobody's explaining it, you know. You just hear these forces. You've got to fight off the bad. Uh, the idea of, of you've got to fight off. You've got to be on your guard. The devil will take you over. Kind of teaching. So this was uh, um, a uh, ongoing problem, you know, because it seemed. That this kind of fear uh, of evil and and this uh, kind of ang- ang- uh, paranoia about it led to uh, increasingly kind of horrible thoughts, and uh, <laughs> and so this was uh, and this was before everybody went to psychotherapists, and they never even thought of that. And, and I didn't go around really talking about it either, didn't, because I was so ashamed. So it was just a <coughs> kind of thing I didn't want people to know about. Then in, in university, studying psychology and things like that, I began to, and the, and the, and the books start pop psychology. Eric Fromm and people like that started coming out in the 50s, and it's kind of get some perspective on, on the on the repressed dark side of humanism. So I was quite relieved to, to get the idea that it was a fairly normal problem, that it wasn't just me. Because the, the problem in that day was that people never admitted to these states. They, 
you, you were trying to put on a front, you know, a, a kind of uh, a mask of being a, a certain kind of person, and then you, uh, and so you felt, and your, your social conditioning was to play this role that was, that made you acceptable, and then you, uh, but inside you, 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 you didn't ever feel you were really that way, and, but you'd never admitted, and no, since nobody ever admitted these things, you, you ended up feeling you were the only one that was abnormal. This kind of dreadful fear of being, going crazy or being abnormal, being some kind of um, freak or pervert or something horrible <coughs> was, was the fear of, of this, uh, this, this kind of uh, angst. So, through uh, the in interest in psychology, then one began to to get some perspective on the on the fact that that this is uh, quite normal, and people then began to like in university began to talk about uh, things like the dark side or the shadow. So fortunately, I never I never really did anything very bad. I didn't have a kind of my my volcanic eruptions tended to be merely uh, short-lived and uh, and not non-violent, but um, I was not criminally inclined, uh, and and I didn't have I never liked fighting or or hurting people or animals or anything. So, so there was not this this kind of uh, you know tendency towards towards acting out these these violent <coughs> feelings. So I call that what they call barami, uh, a person that went in, or accumulated virtues from previous lives. Obviously, I had, I, you know, had quite a, a good character to start with. But uh, and I wanted to understand uh, the nature of things. So in, in uh, becoming a monk, um, the meditation, practicing meditation, was a kind of a a dream come true, because uh, in one could address these things very clearly. Because in in Buddhism, the thing that that really appealed to me on the on the was the Buddhist attitude towards morality, which uh, says that they like to commit it, Im immorality is through action and speech, not through thought. So, so uh, you like we can't you can't. You don't have Im uh, if you have a bad thought. Uh, it's not it's not an immoral thing. It's uh, immorality relates to physical action and speech. I thought that that is quite because the the type of uh, attitude I had was that e you know that saying that even if a man look look at a woman with lust. He's committed adultery. <laughs> There's no hope for me. <laughs> this is <laughs> I can't. Uh, this is not what I. I mean, I can't uh, be that good. Though, because I uh, even a even a bad thought or a dirty thought or a or a demonic thought was something 
bad about me, was, it, was immoral. And so it, it tends you to want to control your thinking and, and uh, try, to, try to, you know, put the, repress your bad thoughts and try to control your, your thinking led to these outbursts of kind of frustrated frustration. So in the, in then in the training, in the, in the monastic life, is very good because uh, this vinaya, this uh, uh, precept training that they have in Theravada Buddhism is uh, gives you a, a lot of, you know, it's a way of, of living uh, kind of your life in regards to uh, limiting your your actions and speech. You have to live. You you have these precepts in regards to action and speech. So you you have these precepts, and then you you can reflect on your own kind of tendencies, and and you try to determine an agreement. When you become a bhikkhu, is to try to live within this restraint. So like uh, here at Amaravati, the we all have a an agreed. Uh, way of living with each other based on uh, on uh, the sila or the moral precepts. There is a, a common agreement uh, that we we live by. But then in that we you know we have our various passions and and our dark fears and repressed desires and and uh, uh, resentments and all that come into our consciousness during our life. Uh, as monks and nuns, uh, so in say in the Thai monastery in in uh, with Ajahn Chah, the living ten years in Thailand, eleven years, uh, was a very uh, kind of important transition period for me. From the uh, day when I was about thirty-two, and came to England when I was about forty-two. A, a, a decade, over a decade, of training within uh, within a system that had uh, you know, this uh, this encouragement to to it, it contained you in uh, in ways of how you acted. So they for thirty over thirty years now. Thirty. This is my thirty first year as a bhikkhu. Um, I've been celibate for thirty one years. I've I've not stolen anything, or I've heavy karmic actions I've not done for over 30 years. So I look back and think, I'm really proud of myself. <laughs> you know, I've been, uh, I mean, you know, the kind of bad things I've done have been relatively minor. Uh, usually a wrong speech of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you know, uh, tendency to exaggerate, you know, uh, being a kind of prone to to like to exaggerate things for rhetorical effect, and and being American, we're very good at, at putting things in in the superlative form, and and everything's absolutely, uh, you know, in a in the high in, in this uh, in superlative style, and living in England's been very good to 
to get into this kind of understated style of English. <laughs> the Americans are the opposite. They overstate everything. <coughs> then the, uh, but the, it's also because thinking bad thoughts, the dark side, fear, or demonic visions, or any of these things, they're not, um, not, you're not taking it anymore as a, as committing an offense against the morality or you, that you're an immoral or bad person because of this, you could be actually begin to, to be able to accept this side as it com- becomes conscious and see it in terms of Dhamma, like Anicca Dukkanata. You can take an interest in it in terms of what it really is uh, as Dhamma rather than as uh, personal problems or Deep, deep, dark things lurking inside your soul, uh, your dark side uh, that can come out and, and you can become, go crazy or you can become a kind of a serial killer or a rapist or something dreadful like that. You, you, you're, you're no longer I- interpreting the, this dark side in a personal way. So it gives you a confidence to be able to look at it and to accept it. And and how I see it now and the, is that the the way the Buddha taught was that like consciousness or vijnana is things as uh, as your karma ripens, as they say, uh, then then the then you start experiencing the things uh, like like fear. Well, suddenly you find yourself uh, in monastic life, and I found myself uh, kind of fri- experiencing a lot of fear, not because of anything in particular, uh, like uh, being in a situation that was frightening, but, but suddenly this, the, the, the tendency to deny or repress fear began to lessen, so that this particular emotion started coming, becoming conscious. And uh, where, and I, so I'd examine it. I remember I was in a, living in this kind of uh, cave-like place in uh, where they, it was, a, it was like a, a grotto of rocks. Uh, and it was uh, a, a very beautiful place, actually, uh, a hill with, with, a, with, with all these kind of rocks and cliffs. And, and the... Uh, one of the village men had made me a kind of build a kind of platform in this in this grotto, uh, which I lived on, and it, it was uh, before the rain, before the monsoon. So you didn't need a roof, and you so I was sitting there in this platform at night, and, and uh, usually I'd sit with my eyes closed. But then one night I, I decided I'd, I'd li- I, I lit a candle and I was sitting there in this this r- grotto. And suddenly all these kind of frightening shadows around. I looked up and there's this huge owl looking at me, staring down at me. And, uh, and it was in this kind of, most kind of eerie, uh, uncanny kind of atmosphere. Uh, like, uh, it was really frightening, uh, just the, the darkness. And so I kept contemplating what could be out there, you know. What is so frightening about the dark? And, and just contemplating the, the ability to look at the dark. And, uh, and then 
then this candle flame with its flickering quality and it would cast various weird shadows in your mind that could create kind of frightening things, uh, you know, the way the the light flickered and the and the unknown, the darkness that was out there surrounding me. Then began to feel this this uh, fear and terror. And so then I tried to deliberately tried to think of the most frightening possible things that could be out there. And and as I started to try to think of what is the most frightening. Uh, things, I got a bit comical, so I started laughing. My creative mind went a bit over the top, and it, <laughs> it got to absurdity, and which, which gave me uh, a, you know, which of course stomped out the fear. The fear was gone then, and I started laughing at myself. But it did give me insight into darkness and how, and how the you know the mind creates this when you can't see then anything could be out there in the dark and then ghosts or spirits you can any this possibility is infinite whatever you your mind is conditioned uh, culturally conditioned to to create through perception is you know. Uh, is what you do, what you create into that blackness, that darkness, that unknownness uh, that uh, that goes on and on. You can, and you, you, all you want to do is close your eyes, go to sleep, or go into a place where there's light. So I noticed that that in the Dutanga tradition, you you carry these umbrellas. You make these bamboo umbrellas, and you have a mosquito net hanging down around them. So there's a lot of mosquitoes in Thailand. So you, so you have, they're called groats. So you have this, this groat and you, and you have this little thin mosquito net around it. But when you're sitting inside this, this groat, just a, a kind of big umbrella with, with this gimpy little mosquito net around, and you're sitting there in this dark cave or grotto of rocks, and you have the candle inside your groat, all, and, and it seems perfectly light. Inside this gloat, you can see everything, you know. Uh, and so, and you can't see outside. So that the outside is no longer, you're no longer looking at that, that vast dark out, outer part. You have this sense of being secure. You know, here I am, and I can see everything. Sitting is about as big as this platform, you know, uh, where you're sitting. And, and but the candle will light it up with plenty of light to see everything, and you feel so safe, even though you know if there is a this goat wouldn't protect you from anything you know <laughs> you know, tigers or or snakes or or ghosts or whatever, but psychologically you feel the sense of of being in the light makes you feel okay, makes you feel secure. So the dark is is the unknown. It's it's it to to us when we think of darkness, it it always represents a, a fear and and what we it, because you don't know in a dark room you don't know what is in the room. But as soon as you switch on the light, the electricity goes on, and you you've got to say, well, I know where everything is. It looks all all right. 
and me and you feel okay again. Everything's all right. And taking that sense of lightness, like I'd contemplate and I'd keep looking at this darkness, contemplating, I can't see anything. You know, my eyes are open. I can't even see in, a, in the dark. I couldn't even see, put my hand right up in front of my eyes and I couldn't see it. <coughs> couldn't see anything. I thought, it's completely dark and black. I can't see anything. And then I said, but I can see darkness. So there's light, isn't there? Because that which sees darkness is light. And then I rested in that in that light of seeing rather than in the a perception of darkness. So you're getting back to that that kind of to that centered place again, that still point of awareness where there is you know that is the light and where the enlightenment is, where we see clearly the way it is. And rather than than creating all the kind of uh, things uh, that that in the unknown blackness around. In, in modern life, you can see just how much we depend on on uh, on how, how how convenient electricity is. It is so convenient because every you know you wake up at night and you just switch on the light, and 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 so you don't have to experience the being in the dark for very long. And usually when we go, when we switch off the lights, usually we go to sleep and and, uh, we don't, you know, so darkness is not an experience that we tend to meditate upon or to understand very much, except it's something you try to get rid of and, uh, or try to ignore or deny. So in meditation, we're, we're really bringing darkness into consciousness. Because it's also, uh, you know, light and dark, they're, they're the dualism. So that we can, uh, the dark <coughs> side of us, then. like there's a lot of resentment. Like in uh, in one's lifetime, how many you know been being mistreated, being treated unfairly, being ignored, being made fun of, being looked down upon, being misunderstood, being uh, whatever. All these are are common human experiences that all human beings have in certain degrees. You know. So then we and. Oftentimes resentment linger in the mind, and we can we can ignore them, and then they'll come up, and you get as you get it comes out as a kind of cynicism, or it seeps out through the cracks like like vitriol. Kind of you find yourself kind of saying some kind of thing in a very negative tone of voice, Uh, or you you find you know that you're you you feel uh, under certain in certain conditions certain situations uh, uh, that uh, you know you feel jealous or envious of people who 
who you think are being treated better than you are or that have more privileges or more opportunities or had a better deal in life than you've had and you resent this. So that these, this dark side thing, as we invite it into conscious experience, but now we're not, we're not analyzing it in terms of on a personal level, you can do that, but it's not really necessary to do that. All you need to really do is to accept it as, as the experience for what it is, and 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 to accept it. Then this this embracing practice that I teach. Now this is this is because uh, I my character is one to to avoid and to withdraw from difficult, unpleasant, unwanted situations. I'm not one to kind of engage in difficult things or kind of go out and, and kind of really challenge things. If something's difficult or unpleasant or uh, uh, unwanted, I tend to, my natures tend to withdraw, procrastinate, uh, get away from it run away from difficult things. So this uh, kind of embracing practice is, is, a, is a new pie or skillful means I developed because it, it, was, it would counteract this, this, this character tendency to, to run away from difficult things or withdraw from, uh, to, to switch on the light when in the dark room uh, is, is so that I could avoid the the darkness, or embrace the darkness. So that like really penetrating, say, the experience of, of a dark room, seeing, looking at darkness, contemplating it, was, was a kind of, I had to embrace, I had to accept the darkness first before I could actually kind of contemplate it. Or say as a mood of the mind, the the uh, the um, anger or resentment comes up. Then, like say say as a monk, I think uh, a monk should be grateful for the four requisites. Uh, people have, you know, your your in terms of developing good qualities, virtuous qualities, then you. You have these ideals of, of you should be grateful for the robes you have, the shelter, and the medicine, the food. Uh, and you should be content with little. You shouldn't go around trying to get a lot of things for yourself. You should be content with few things, and you should be, uh, you should keep the, all the rules and be very strict and diligent in your practice. And you should be, uh, kind and compassionate to everybody, everything. And you should be nonviolent, ahimsa, and you, so forth. So these are the ideals uh, of, uh, you know, of the monastic form. So then these are, so these are ideals, and these are kind of guide, these are like the guiding stars. You know, they're very high, very good, very beautiful qualities. 
But then in terms of experience, what are you actually feeling? So it's interesting when, when Ajahn Anando disrobed years ago and, and he got ran away from the monastery and, and people were very upset by that. And so I'd ask people, I said, well, how do you feel about it? And the first person I asked, I said, well, he was a wonderful teacher and, and he was, uh, uh, I, you know, he, was, he worked so hard and he gave so much, we should always be grateful to him. I said, but how do you really feel? <laughs> how do you really feel about it? You know, and, and she refused to answer that because she was coming from what you should, your, your, the, the proper response to the situation. That's the ideal, isn't it? Uh, you should be grateful and, and, and be compassionate. Uh, and that's the grand gesture and that's the that's what we should, uh, how we should respond to, say, Ajahnando running away. That's a, that's a good response. But then, how do you really feel? And then you have to look here. And sometimes you don't want to admit how you really feel. You want to, you'd rather pretend that, you know, I really, he was a wonderful teacher, I'll always be grateful to him, and in your heart you're feeling really hurt, disillusioned, disappointed, but you're refusing to look at it. So then, so then, uh, it was an opportunity with many people at that time to investigate, you know, the difference between the ideal, you know, and the kind of grand gesture and the virtuous response, and being able to notice what you actually feel in an honest way as it comes into <laughs> your consciousness. So, in, in uh, the uh, Four Foundations of Mind, what we're doing is we're bringing into consciousness things that, like feeling, or say, jitanupasana, is like where you're actually bringing into consciousness the kind of feelings in your body, uh, the mood of the mind, the 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 feeling of, of disappointment or betrayal, feeling betrayed, feeling let down, or angry, feeling angry. How could he do this? But not, not in terms of blame or indulging in that anger, but in being able to recognize in the present moment what you know, the, the emotional... <coughs> reaction that oftentimes we can we can dismiss or deny or reject for the grand uh, kind of proper way of what we should feel well, maybe we'd like to feel that way maybe I, I wouldn't like to not feel angry but I'd like to be able to feel oh well we wish him happiness no matter what he was a good mountain he did a lot of good things and and uh, we'll never forget, and we must forgive any, any, any kind of things that we weren't quite right, well, we forgive him. Wish I could feel like that. But then, then, but then that's what we do in terms of our response to the situation. 
you know, encourage people to think, to be thankful and remember all the good things and develop, uh, 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 you know, and forgive. And that, that's what we we can we can uh, do and respond in in the right way. But then understanding or accepting what you're actually feeling isn't isn't a criticism or a a uh, you know a put down of anybody but it is recognizing the way it is so you begin to notice a difference because how many uh, I remember uh, somebody showed me an old uh, World War two uh, film British film about um, the um, RAF during World War Two here in England. You know, the dramatic scene is the they, they, the Spitfires take off and and they have this uh, uh, woman who runs an inn and she's uh, she's uh, she's she just married this this officer who's a pilot of the Spitfire and he and they're uh, they're very much in love and. And they have this kind of, you know, in the 40s, this kind of way they made films here. <laughs> very, very English, you know. Jessica And so they're, they're being very <coughs> stiff upper lip and, and they're not into kind of passionate embraces and, and expressions of, on the... On the <laughs> But in towards a very kind of proper, dignified uh, way that is that is uh, very admirable, very kind of beautiful, and kind of dignity and its coolness and its respect. And then, of course, uh, her new husband, her her husband flies away, crashes, dies in somewhere in France. And then the best friend comes, and and he has to tell the wife. So he says, you know, um, Nigel, his, uh, his plane went down and she, she, and she has this, looks incredibly dignified and she goes, and turns and looks out the window. <laughs> 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 it was <a laughs> classic kind of, you know, stiff upper, like great dignity and beauty and, and, you know, just total kind of not wallowing in grief or showing any sign of, but this kind of sadness, but stiff upper lip, keep yourself together and uh, don't let anyone know, don't make a scene, don't let anyone know what you're feeling. Those are the messages I had also growing up at that time. The, the idea was to not burden people with your emotions or, or make a scene or be a nuisance. So in, in the, then in, in the monastic life, it looked like like we are you know like we're sitting here and we're just sitting on things you know holding everything down and but actually you know if you 
right practice is, uh, to me anyway, when I think of right meditation, is I'm not sitting here just holding everything down. I'm letting everything up. So, you know, in terms of what comes up in my meditation, and in the first few years, a lot of a lot of that repressed, that dark side would come up. Uh, really, bitterness and anger, and and uh, a lot of anger. I had the first two months that I was a samanera, and uh, <coughs> it just was was uh, relentless, a hellish experience for two months of just. <coughs> feeling angry and hating everybody. Hating everybody. I couldn't think of anybody that I didn't hate. <laughs> it was so ugly, you know, and I thought, thought, you know, I, this is, I must be doing something wrong because uh, meditation is supposed to make you kind of blissful and happy and nice and kind of... <laughs> Lights and all that. Here I'm sitting, you know, this this kind of relentless, inexorable anger and hatred kind of coming into my consciousness. But something in me, intuitively, I knew I had to accept that. And I also knew that it wasn't immoral to have these, it's, uh, since I wasn't going to act on it or say anything. So just trusting and ability to be patient and stay with it, then the, this anger, uh, you know, finally, uh, as I've said before, I woke up one morning and, and I was in this state of, this uh, state of everything looked ethereally beautiful. Because something had kind of been resolved, maybe 32 years of, of resentment and, and repressed anger and bitterness and that had, you know, the, it seemed like a bottomless pit at first, but actually it, it did, it, 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 I wasn't trying to, I didn't create this, this sense of beauty, it just was a natural state. My mind actually, that morning, there was no anger or hatred in it at all. And there was no need to hold anything down either. There was no kind of repressive, you know, resistance to anything so that the mind was in a natural state of beauty. I began to recognize beauty again, experience it, not just see a, a hold to an ideal of beauty, but re- re- with be- what is really beautiful, which was <coughs> the state of my mind. Because the kuti, the little hut I was in, and the place I lived in was, certainly wasn't very beautiful in terms of, you know, ideal beauty. Uh, it was a scrubby forest, and the kuti was a, it was all right, but it wasn't by any means beautiful. Went into the to the where the toilet was. Where they had little kind of crude little toilets, and they had a a water basin there, big kind of pottery jar, and and they had this kind of purple plastic dish sitting in the, in the water in this jar, and. Uh, and the sun was shining in through the lattice work of the bathroom into this purple dish, plastic dish, into the water. It, it looked utterly, breathtakingly beautiful. 
<laughs> Where before I would have, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't have seen anything beautiful in that. But because the mind itself was was in this state of of purity, then then everything looked looked would seem to be touched by this this kind of ethereal quality, this radiance. Then over the years, the the uh, I mean, after that that lasted for a few days, but then the mind goes back to its it finds a level, uh, uh, then it, you kind of sink back into the. Uh, it made me very sensitive, and and I remember at that time I had to renew my visa. And it. Uh, because you, I didn't have permission to stay in Thailand for very long. They had three months at a time, and, and I was in Nong Khai. So try, I was the the head monk of the province, and arranged for me to renew my visa at the immigration in Nong Khai, which is where you cross over to Laos. But I didn't know that the the head monk had kind of pressured the immigration officer. That I actually, wasn't supposed to. We were foreigners. We were supposed to go to Bangkok to renew our visas, and, but they'd been pressured to renew my visa in Long Kai. So I went in that day, and I was in this state of, of very of this pure state, uh, where everything looked beautiful. And I walked from the monastery about several miles to the immigration office, and and I could see everything. I could see the pain in people's faces. It was kind of a very kind of heightened sense of awareness and and uh, and then I walked into this immigration office and I felt this like a wall of hatred reach and I walked in and suddenly I felt this totally negative kind of hostile feeling and and these these clerks and the, the officer they they were they just looked at me with with aversion and I could feel it. I just saw it was in a, such a sensitive state. And they, they did stop my visa, but they did it. You know, it wasn't very nice feeling because it, it was. Uh, yeah. I, uh, being that sensitive and that open, I suddenly was, was just. I could feel, even though they didn't say anything, or make any threatening gestures. Just their whole resentment of me and having been pressured, I could feel it. And that just broke me down. I went rushing back to the monastery, <laughs> kind of, and that whole sense of this radiant uh, ethereal quality disappeared. And I was kind of in a state of really kind of uh, shattered feeling, just by by seeing by experiencing that hostility, which wasn't, you know, they didn't hit me or say anything bad. But then I remembered this state and I kept trying to get it back, you know, I wanting to wanting to think I thought at the time I probably was enlightened and and then and then I found out I wasn't. But <laughs> but uh so the mind the grasping mind keeps trying to keep trying to to get it back, what you remember. And uh, and so you struggle and do all the things you did before, but 
you know, it's that desire and the kind of uh, grasping that is always the the uh, obstruction, the delusion. So then over the years, I quit trying to, to renew experiences or get enlightened or, or uh, you know, force things, but to begin to just observe the things that would, that would become conscious in me and try to be with the, with the life uh, that as I was experiencing it. And even though I understood that uh, intellectually, it was taken many, many years to be able to do that as a kind of natural way to, to be. Because one easily falls back into the old habits and, and uh, reactivity. But due to the, the protection, say, of monastic vinya training, you, you, you've got something that kind of carries you uh, through uh, things and prevents you from doing anything too, too, too heavy. That's why I began to see the, the value of, you know, the, the, such a, why the Buddha did establish a Vinaya. Because in, the, in Thailand, in those early years uh, that I was there, there was a lot of controversy around the use of Vinaya. There's some monks, Western monks, that say, all you have to do is study the Dhamma, the Vinaya, you know, that doesn't matter. That's just old-fashioned. That may be applied to India, you know, 2,500 years ago, but it's not, you know, the Buddha was a good philosopher, but, uh, but didn't make very good rules. Say things like that. <laughs> and then, then you'd study the Vinaya, and some, sometimes, you know, you're, you're having rules about uh, having uh, a, a little rug that has to have goat wool of a certain color in certain places. <laughs> Yeah, you know, part of you think this is ridiculous. You know, we don't, these are not. You know, we don't have these anymore anyway. And you, well, the, a lot of the rules were about things that no longer exist. And then you, you, uh, 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 how to build a. You know, how high the door frame should be, or uh, according to uh, measures that no longer are usable. You don't know even what they, how big they are, uh, and. And then you have various, uh, you know, you, you, you have the, this whole this discipline, disciplinary rules that were made up in India 2,500 years ago. And, uh, and so it's easy to make a case and dismiss the, this, this uh, Vinaya uh, from your reasonable state. Reason, you know, it seems reasonable. But the thing, I didn't trust that, didn't trust, because I can be extremely reasonable and I can justify anything I want to do. I'm a very rational, rational person, so, and I find that I can just, if I want to do something, I can find reasonable justifications for it, no matter what. <laughs> robbing a bank, I could justify robbing a bank. Or murdering somebody, I, my rational ability <laughs> could, could rationalize that. Uh, and justify uh, anything really, but if you have a moral base, then then that gives you some standard, say, in regards to action and speech. Uh, 
that you that you will not say go beyond then then in terms of a a discipline that that with a lot of rule a lot of precepts that no longer some of them you couldn't understand what they were about anyway and you were supposed to keep all these precepts but then the the training with the precepts was was to develop mindfulness and so you realize it wasn't so matter it wasn't a matter of of rule keeping in, in a very literal sense but in in the kind of attitude of it of 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 learning how to to not try to get luxurious things for yourself or or try to you know manipulate the 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 faithful lay supporters for your own to get what you want or to uh, build extravagant things for yourself without you know or to to uh, do all kinds of things in the society that that may be upset or are inconvenient or disrespectful to the lay supporters so you you get begin to get a feeling for the 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 uh, vinaya as as an as an uh, as a way to to train yourself to live in a in a much more restrained and uh, way of being content with with um, with the, a minimum and being responsible for how you relate <coughs> to the other monks to the nuns to the lay community around you but all of this of course then brings in this your own vipaka kama which is uh, your emotional reactions so i've experienced rebellion to to restraint you know one thing like vinaya is a restraining thing so for i used to feel i i go through people i'm being suffocated by all these rules and all this restriction and all this can't do this you can't do that and, I feel I get into this mood I'm being suffocated I feel like I'm being smothered to death with all this and then I'd really let that become conscious my feeling of being suffocated and I realize that's just my emotions coming up you know resisting not wanting fear resenting the restraint and then I feel rebellious like I just wanted to rebel against this restraint and I could begin to notice that as I began to feel it in my body this this kind of desire to just say get lost or this or, or be complaining or or uh, critical of it all so I became aware of of the of these emotional habits in regards to restriction morality responsibility convention uh, uh, relationships with others and, and on and on like that so more and more the as you bring your use consciousness with wisdom of training the, your conscious experience through wisdom then you begin to uh, feel a sense of joy and this kind of radiant quality is quite natural to the present moment uh, and it becomes quite ordinary uh, 
as you stop fighting, struggling, resisting, controlling, manipulating, blaming, feeling sorry for yourself, uh, trying to get things you don't have, or getting lost in sense of grief or sorrow at, the, at, at separation from the loved, or getting overwhelmed by all the uh, anger and hatred and blame and projections that that you might be receiving from, from outside, from the society, the people you're living with. You begin to trust more in this resting, in this still place within, in this, which is, even though it's like a still point, it's really like the, a universal. It's like one of those paradoxes, a point, and yet it embraces everything. It's like one little point, but yet it embraces everything. So that's, that's how intuition works. It's an embracing ability, it's not a discriminative one. So I offer this as a reflection. Mm-hmm.